Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me for the season premiere, season number nine of Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. It's great to be back with you for another year of the show, and thank you so much for your continued support by voting in the podcast magazine Hot 50 list for the show. Even while we've been on hiatus for the last five months, the show has continued to climb up the charts. We've been inside the top 10 for the last four months in a row, so your support has been fantastic. Please keep voting each day by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. Like I say, Next on the T Nation has been showing out in large numbers, and I appreciate your support very much. So like I say, welcome to season nine. It's hard to imagine that I've had the privilege of talking with the top instructors in the game, plus legends from both the men's and ladies tours since 2013. And this season, we're going to bring you back even more access to the greatest players and instructors in the game. Our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, is back with me this season. TP is going to join me every other week, just like he has for the last few years. Plus, the show is booked out through the end of April with legends from the PGA Tour champions and the LPGA Legends Tour. So you'll hear more from inside the ropes, more stories for what it's like to play in the biggest tournaments in the game, and more tips to help you have more fun out on the golf course and perhaps take a few bucks off your buddies when you get to the 19th hole. So thank you again for making Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. All right, on to tonight's show. And leading off like he normally does is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Tonight, I'll get TP's thoughts on the Players' Championship, which will be a theme for tonight's show. We'll be talking to everybody about that where we reflect back. I'll also get his thoughts on the steep price the fillers paid for trying to leverage the Saudi League against the PGA Tour. Plus, a tip or two about how to putt better, particularly lag it up there closer so we can avoid those three putts. TP will join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from Champions Tour Pro Billy Mayfair. I'll get Billy's memories from his time playing at Arizona State, plus winning the 1987 U.S. Amateur Championship. We'll also talk about his win at the 1998 Nissan Open. He won that tournament, beating Tiger Woods in a playoff. He's the only player to ever defeat Tiger in a playoff, so we'll talk about that. Plus, Billy has overcome testicular cancer and recently was diagnosed with being on the autism spectrum, so we'll hear how he's dealt with both of those things and a whole lot more when he joins me about 20 minutes from now. Following Billy, I'll get a return visit from PGA Tour legend Hal Sutton. As you all know, Hal has become a great friend of the show over the last few years. When we're reflecting back on the Players' Championship, who better to do that with than a two-time Players' Champion? I'll get Hal's thoughts on what he saw during the tournament. Plus, we'll look ahead to the Masters. We'll get a playing lesson from him for when we're playing a hole that has trouble everywhere. How do we not focus on the trouble and instead focus on where we want the ball to go? 
I'm excited to have Hal back as part of the show. He'll join me later on in this hour. And then we're going to round out tonight's show with Champions Tour Pro Olin Brown. Olin has become a staple on the show over the years, which I am deeply thankful for. Tonight's going to be his 10th visit with me. I'll get his thoughts on the Phil situation and the players as well. Plus, I'll get Olin's master's memories and common mistakes he sees us make when he's playing in a pro-am. Olin's going to join me at the top of the next hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And like I say, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. My buddies and I were there last year for our annual golf trip, and it was so amazing, we're going back again this year. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And the course lived up to every expectation that we had for it. Can't say enough great things about the place. Go online to themacklemore.com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why we're all bragging about it by going online to themacklemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why we made the all-new TaylorMade Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. All right, now back again with me this season is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. For everyone in the Fort Myers, Florida area, go see Tom at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club. He can help you play your best golf ever this year. Later this summer, he'll be back at Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia. So you folks in the Virginia, West Virginia, and Washington, D.C. areas, you get to have Tom back again this year. So go on to his website, TomPatry.com, check him out, and become the next student that Tom coaches up to a championship level. If you can't go see him in person, download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your golf swing. He can help get you dialed in through the app. Give TP a follow on Twitter and Instagram at TomPatryGolf. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can get over 150 free playing videos right there for you. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Advisory Board, and I'm very thankful. He is back with me again this season on Next on the Tee. Hey, TP, how are you, my friend? First Boy. A little extra for me to start the new year. TP, how are you, my friend? So glad to hear your voice. Chris, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I mean, I, first of all, before we get started, season number nine for you. How many shows, man? 9,532? I mean, what's I, going on? I, think that's, I then, think that's pretty close. And then the top ten of that podcast magazine thing, it's just, the man is amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I love you, Tom. My friend, I I got to you know start out with uh, with you tonight. We got to talk about the Players Championship. I tell you, the things that I saw over the what turned out to be five days of that golf tournament 
from the weather, the, the, the wind and the rain to some amazing golf shots to, um, to Cam hanging on at the end. I, I was, I was getting a little nervous for him. Uh, especially the way he played 18. I was getting a little nervous. He was going to throw it all away. But uh, y- your thoughts on what you saw over the last five days? Well, it was a tournament that lasted over five days in three different seasons. We had, we had, we had a little winter, we had a little <laughs> spring, we had a little fall. Um, and for anybody that's ever been there, Chris, I, I don't know if you've been there or not, but I, I've probably played uh, TPC probably, I don't know, a dozen times in my life. And I remember the first time I went, actually, the first time I actually went, it was 1984. I stayed with Freddie when he won. I uh, I was up there for the wow. week with him, and, and actually, and actually stayed, and then we uh, we hung out together for the week and had a condo. And uh, so I, you know, it was great because he he played the last two rounds. I mean, the last round, excuse me, Chris. But now think about this: 1984, he played the last round with Watson and Ballesteros. Wow. Um, so I got to kind of watch real close under tournament conditions, and the course had been softened a little bit since then, but but not very much. And then they had that weather they had this week, and it's a really hard place. It's a very visually intimidating place. Um, it's the kind of place if you get going the wrong direction, it's hard to turn. It's a real hard place to turn around. Um, but also, as you saw the last day with Dustin shooting 63 and, and, and Cam making 10 birdies, it's the kind of place if you are dialed in, um, you can get at some pins and, and you can do some damage if the wind lays down. Um, for people who don't know it, it's right across the street from, from the ocean. It's not very far from the ocean at all, under a mile. So it can get whipped in there, as you saw, as you saw it happen this week. And you throw some rain in there, and it's, it's, uh, it's pretty challenging. Um, my thoughts were this. I, I thought there was a lot of whining going on the first couple of days. And, and there, was, there was some whining going on for pretty major players. And, and I guess they forgot that everybody was playing under the same conditions. Um, I think the tough thing about TPC right now in the schedule is, you know, they go to Honda. It's a really hard golf course. They went to Bay Hill this year. I was actually at Bay Hill on Sunday, and the golf course was really, really difficult. Then you go to TPC. It's like you get punched in the face three times in a row. Um, that's a really tough stretch. And mentally, I think you want to focus on TPC, obviously. I, I consider it the fifth major. Um, you want to be fresh going in there. I think a lot of guys, are not happy about the the way the schedule falls out, um, and there's no there's no real week to skip there. Um, you want to feel like you're going there prepared and playing, but you're playing on three very difficult venues in a row. It's just mentally taxing. Take that a step further, because that's one of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on, particularly around the the Arnold Palmer Invitational. The golf course is always set up very difficult. We've heard complaints from players about the API. For years, I, I can remember going back years ago to Chris DeMarco talking about how the golf course plays too difficult. It, it, to me, it very much reminded me of a U.S. Open setup. I mean, the rough looked incredibly thick. I mean, I, I remember seeing some of the videos. I, I think one of the caddies posted during the practice round of a ball just off the fairway in the rough. Couldn't see it. They almost had to step on it to be able to see it. And then when you get the greens dried out and, and all that and the, the speed and all, all the things that come into how difficult they set up that golf course and players complain about it. Rory talked about just almost what, what you just said a minute ago. Like he got punched in the face. He said, I think he said he was punch drunk. Everybody played the same golf course, but is that a problem where we could see fewer and fewer players playing the API because they don't want to go through what they have to go through in order to play that golf tournament for four days or, you know, five or six days with practice rounds and then go right into the players 
So now that Mr. Palmer is no longer with us, do you think that that's a danger in the schedule that player, more and more players will skip it because they just don't want to deal with the golf course? I think Chris, you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, you know, people went there in the past. I mean, great, great players went there in the past, um, no matter how hard it was because they respected Arnold so much. And I think the, the, uh, the tournament committee and the PGA tour together have to be extremely careful going forward because let's face it, Arnold is not there anymore. And there, there isn't that because I have to, I have to show up because Arnold asked me to. Um, I could I could actually see, and I, I hope this doesn't happen, Chris, I can actually see this tournament years from now going away um, because, you know, schedules do change and, you know, Arnold is not here anymore. It is a great venue. Uh, Orlando has, has become a great golf town, but without Arnold's presence, if you continue to, to, to set this golf course up the way they set it up, because on Sunday, those greens weren't weren't dry. They were they were almost dead. They were literally almost dead. And I don't know. I don't know if people have talked about this very much, but if you notice the last two rounds, every ball that was hit in the bunker, almost virtually every ball plugged. Uh, somebody had the great uh, great intuition to put put fresh sand in the bunker very close to the tournament date, and the sand, the sand never settled. So now, you know, players would sometimes bail out in the bunker because they hit a bunker shot better than they can hit that deep rough around the greens. But there was no bail out into the bunker. Uh, you hit it in the bunker, you, you press, you're actually worse off than in that tall grass in some respects. So there were a lot of mis- I think there were several mistakes made in the course setup. I think a lot of guys were hacked off about it. Arnold was not alive anymore. Um, I think they've got to be very, very cautious going forward in the next one or two years with how they set that golf course up, or they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna lose a quality field. Tom, I want to go back to the Players' Championship because there's a couple other questions I wanted to get your thoughts on, particularly with uh, Cam Smith's final round. Were you surprised that he attacked the pin on 17 with a two-stroke lead? Or if you pulled him aside and got into his heart of hearts, did he push that shot? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great story that relates to that, Chris. In, in 84, when Freddie won, I was walking around the last round. When I was positioned on 17 on the, on the left hill, left of the green on the spectator hill, and, you know, of course, in one shot lead, and he's got, you know, Watson and Trevino and Watson and Ballesteros right there. Actually, the group in front of him was Stadler and Trevino. Cool. Uh, here's a guy that only won one time at that point. And he hits the shot on 17, and I, I kind of have a side view, but I look up and I go, oh my God, that ball's going, that ball's right. It's going in, in, in the lake. And it caught the back right side of the green, not so dissimilar to the way Cam's did. Um, so, we, we, but, you know, 40 minutes later, he's done and he's won. And we're in the, we're in the press room and it, we're just about to go to, he's just about to go into a press conference. And I looked at him and I said, what the hell were you thinking about on 17? <laughs> he goes, go for the pin. He goes, I blocked that thing 40 feet. I was choking so bad. Um, <laughs> so, so I think Cam was in the same situation. He was probably playing that thing a little left and short of the pin and hoping it was released. And, you know, a little tension and a little adrenaline and kind of shoved it out to the right. And luckily, he caught some real estate there. I, I, there's no way he was hitting it at that pin. There's no way. What about his decision to hit driver off the 18th tee? After he duck-hooked his tee shot on 16 a couple of holes ago and having hit it in the water on 18 off the tee in two of his previous rounds, I was yelling at the screen at his caddy to grab the driver away from him, just kind of like I did with Bones. With Phil back in 2006 at Wingfoot, I want him to take the driver, snap it over his knee, hand him the three wood, and say, "What are you thinking? Hit this." 
So I, I looked at I looked at Cam with that driver in eighteen the same way I looked at Philip Wingfoot or Vandeveld at Carnoustie. I was like, put that son of a excuse me back in the bag. Um, you know, I mean, it's it, it's either a uh, a foolish move, a, uh, a, a adrenaline move, uh, you know, caught in the moment move, or just a, a really confident player says, I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna take this thing the bull by the horns and go. But, I thought I thought that was not the club's choice, and then I think the shot he hit from under the trees and went in the water eventually. That thing ran 75 or 80 yards. That was just an adrenaline rush where he he actually just you know didn't expect it to come out of that pine straw that good, and he kind of hit it a little too hard and took off on a firm fairway. Um, the the real coup de gras though is how great was that that pitch shot he hit after he dropped right um, under that under that crush. That was I mean I thought that was off the chart good and not talked about near enough. Tom, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about Tiger Woods and the Hall of Fame. He got inducted last week. He uh, Obviously, he was going to get in. I mean, they lowered the age from 50 to 45, so it happened this year. thought his speech was a little odd. What did you think about Tiger's induction? You know, I it, first of all, because you know, we talked off air before, I mean, that, that, that audience, when they panned that audience and, and the balcony, it was like, who's who? I mean, nobody... Nobody in golf was missing. It didn't seem like it. You, so many guys came out. So many guys who were previous Hall members came back. Uh, it was a real testament to Tiger that he looked up in the balcony. So many guys came over from TPC to sit up in the balcony just 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 to watch the induction. I thought the speech was a little odd in that you could tell it was not prepared. Uh, he was he did it off the cuff. I I was really surprised that something that important was done off the cuff. I thought it was really uh, a swing and a miss. You know, whether you have a good relationship or a bad relationship with Butch, with Hank Haney, with Chris Cuomo, with Fluff, with Stevie Williams, and currently with Joey, you know, his good relationship with, I thought the fact that he didn't mention those guys, at least in bringing up that, listen, let's face it, those six people, um, those three teachers and those three caddies, had a hell of a lot to do, in my opinion, with so many of his successes. And I, I at least thought they deserved a shout-out. Um, obviously, we knew he was going to thank his parents. We knew that was going to happen. Um, he referenced Earl and Mom several, several times during that speech. But I thought it was a, a peculiar absentee that those six other people, who I think have an awful lot to do, like I said, with his successes, were missed. Yeah, I was, I was sort of scratching my head watching the speech. Because I, I I thought when he ended it, he was still just in the beginning of what he was going to talk about. I mean, he talked about, you know, as a, as a young guy and then, you know, the, the challenges that he faced, you know, trying to get on the golf courses and play and, and, and those sorts of things. And then the early tournaments and all of that. So I think great, great stuff. And we got to age about 10 and then it was good night. Like, wait, yeah. wait, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah, just at 10. What happened? What about all the the U.S. amateurs and the Stanford and the '97 Masters and the 2000 U.S. Open? Like I thought we'd get some of that. We got good night at ten. Yeah, we, I was. We definitely. We, I, I thought definitely it was, it was a, a swing and a miss on a lot of different fronts. Um, and again, I think that's what happens when you're in a moment that's an emotional moment like that, and you're not prepared, or you think you can go up there and wing it. Um, it it's hard to wing it in that setting. You, you so much emotion. There's so many things running through your head. There's so many people in front of you and faces that you recognize. It's easy to get lost up there. And I think the fact that he wasn't prepared. And here's a guy that is, is 
is an ultra, ultra great preparer for golf tournaments, right? I mean, one of the great preparers of all time, much like Nicholas was. And in such an important moment, he wasn't really prepared, I didn't think. Time moving on. I want to get your thoughts on all the hot water Phil Mickelson has put himself in with the Saudi <laughs> League, trying to leverage, right, the potential, uh, get more money out of the PGA Tour by leveraging the Saudi League and all of that, you know. And, and I get that that was the wrong thing to do and that, that I didn't think that strategy through. But, boy, he has paid an unbelievable price, in my opinion, losing all of his sponsors. You know, Callaway put him on pause. but Everyone else sort of backing away from him and all of that sort of thing. Seems like a lot for a guy that didn't break any laws. He, he you know, he, nothing, he didn't get arrested or anything. He, he, he lapsed of judgment, all with you, lapsed of judgment. But boy, this seems like an awfully steep price. You know, I think we disagree a little bit on this one, Chris. I mean, I think it's, you know, Phil has had, um, you know, just numerous, numerous times when he's, you know, opened his mouth and stuck his foot in it. We we had some incidents in Vegas. We've had a really close brush with insider trading. Uh, we can go on and on about some things that have happened that have been controversial. Um, Phil is always the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I, I mean, it's pretty well documented in some of the things I've posted and talked about that I'm not a big Phil fan. Listen, incredible talent. Incredible talent. I mean, incredible record. Listen, you take Tiger Woods off the planet, uh, the last 25 years, and this guy is Tiger Woods. He, you know, he's done some incredible things on the golf course, hit some incredible shots at key times. Um, he's been as dramatic in some of his losses as he's been in some of his wins. But you know what? You don't bite the hand that feeds you. I mean, we disagree, Phil. The PGA Tour made you, and no one player is bigger than the PGA Tour. No one player is bigger than the PGA Tour. Maybe with the exception, maybe with the exception of Tiger. Um, he called some people out, uh, publicly that I, I didn't think was cool. Um, and, and depending on what your political views are, um, <laughs> then he calls out the Saudis too. He actually bashes them as killers. So he bashes his home front. He bashes where he might be going. He, you know, he's a man on a life raft in the ocean by himself. So <laughs> whatever he get, whatever he gets, Still deserves and listen. You're right. It's cost and deal. It's it's it's. He's a very very unpopular commodity right now, uh, and the and the thing that's really sad about that is here's a great 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 career, a Hall of Fame career, one of the greatest Hall of Fame careers, and this will be part of his legacy going forward. This will be something he'll be remembered for going forward, as much as he's remembered for some of his great victories. Tom, I can't let you go without getting a playing lesson from you tonight and send me, um, send me a Venmo send me a Venmo <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll <laughs> <laughs> help me with um, help me with lag putting you know a lot of us amateurs we, we throw away a lot of strokes on three putts so when you're looking at a 40 to 50 footer how can we do a better job of getting it down there I know we got to practice those but how can we do a better job of reading the putt and getting it inside a two foot circle so we can help ourselves from not three-putting and save some strokes. You know, it's incredible, Chris, you're asking this question. My last my last uh, session today at the Crown Colony was with um, a young man named Evan Long, who's very dear to me, who was tempted to me about um, four years ago. Bobby Ford sent me, actually, um, wow. a good friend of yours and mine. Yeah. And Evan was at the University of Minnesota, 
and, and virtually unproven. He's had a, a great run the last three years and some major amateur events, and he turned pro uh, and just got his Latin American tour card, and actually in his second, in his second uh, start, finished fifth in Chile. So we're really moving in the right direction. He's doing beautifully, and we were out working tonight and uh, on the golf course. And on the first hole, he drove it down there pretty nicely and then hit kind of a little bit of a chunky iron and left himself about 45 feet uh, over a rise, down a hill, up a hill, down a hill, side hill, really difficult. And he, he was going to go hit some chip shots. I said, no, no, let's putt that one. And uh, he hit this incredibly beautiful speed putt up over the hill, broke perfectly and rolled it down and actually quit the low edge and just spun it out and stopped about an inch behind the hole. And one of the things that he and I have done the last four years is we've hit a million, a million speed and, uh, and lag cuts because it was a weakness when he came to me as a junior at the University of Minnesota. His speed control was not very good. So we've done tons of speed drill, uh, with a lot of undulation and a lot of, uh, a lot of movement in putts. You know, anytime you hit a good putt from a long distance, you've married together perfectly line and speed. And some people are really good at getting the ball in line and some people are good at getting the ball to go to the right speed, but not very many people can put both of those things together. So I think one of the things that amateurs make a mistake in doing is when they go out and practice, a lot of practice putting greens at clubs are relatively flat, and that doesn't really simulate some of the things you're going to encounter on a golf course. So I take people on the golf course late in the day to some of the more difficult greens on the golf course and put them in different positions and ask them to read the putt and talk to me about what they're seeing and then we coach them through what they might be missing, and they hit a lot of putts from different positions. And I encourage them to go out there by themselves at times, get a golf ball and go on the golf course, and hit a lot of putts in those situations, because the only way you get your eye dialed into that and your hands dialed into that uh, are by, is by doing it a lot. Um, it's an art form. It's, it's part science, but it's part art form, and you've got to go out there and experience it and do it thousands and thousands times to be really good at it. I mean, Cam Smith this week, um, <laughs> absolutely incredible uh, to some really tough hole locations. Hit some wonderful putts that he, you know, I mean, let's face it, he holds a bunch of them, Chris, but the ones he didn't hold were dead weight right at the hole every time. A lot of hours have gone into that skill. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners now how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, follow you both on your website and on social media as well. Chris, uh, the website is really simple, just TomPatry.com. But uh, I'm really proud of this YouTube channel. It's taken on a life of its own. It's got 150 videos on it now. They're really, really good. And uh, you can you can go there, subscribe for free, and, and, and like them. And I wish everybody would. Um, but the normal, all the normal characters, you know, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, are all part of, uh, of ways to find me. Um, but you know what? Let's circle the wagons and back to you. How, how, this is your ninth season. Dude, look at the lineup you've got tonight behind a no-name teacher, an old, fat, no-name teacher from <laughs> Fort Myers, Florida. You've got a major championship winner. You've got Billy Maker had one of the great amateur runs of, his, of, his, of, of, of golf in, the, in this century, or, or the last century, I should say, actually. And Owen Brown is one of the one of the all time great grinders on the golf course. You continue to have some unbelievable guests. It's a real tribute to who you are. And man, I, I can't wait for the day because it's going to happen when when the phone rings and it's ESPN or it's the Golf Channel. Somebody who really realizes that 
the talent they have sucks, and you should be on there ahead of most of those people because you're unbelievable at what you do, dude. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That means a great deal to me. Um, from your lips to God's ears, my friend. Uh, exactly. But I love you. Exactly. You're you're the best. I can't thank you enough for coming back for another season. Uh, I look forward to each and every time you're a part of the show. You always make the segment so much fun. No one's better than you, Tom Patrick. Chris, short game, short game, short game. I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> thank you for beating that Don't into my head. Him. Yeah. Thanks, pal. Take care, Tom. That's a great Tom Patry. TomPatry.com is the website at Tom Patry Golf on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, check out that YouTube page, my friends, because he's got, like you said, 150 free videos. How can you not go out there and subscribe to when one of the great instructors of all time is going to give you free lessons to go out there and watch over and over again at your leisure? Tom Patrick, what a great man. Before I get to my next guest, Billy Mayfair, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Strixon. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Shrixon. Check them out online at Shrixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. All right. Now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Champions Tour Pro Billy Mayfair. Let me give you some background on Billy. He's from Phoenix, Arizona. By age 15, he had become such a great junior player that Boys Life magazine featured him on the cover. Played his college golf at Arizona State, where his 1986-87 scoring average of 70.59 is still among the best in school history. He won the 1986 U.S. Amateur Public Links Tournament. In 1987, he won the U.S. Amateur by beating Eric Redmond 4-3 and at Jupiter Hills Golf Club. And he won back-to-back Pacific Coast Amateur Championships in 1987 and 88. In 87, he won the Haskins Award for being the nation's best collegiate golfer. He turned pro in 1988, and he won five times out on the PGA Tour, the first one coming at the 1993 Greater Milwaukee Open, then twice in 1995 at the Western Open and the Tour Championship, which was played that year at Southern Hills Country Club, won twice again in 1998 at the Nissan Open when he became the only player to ever defeat Tiger Woods in a playoff. He won again later that year at the Buick Open. Billy has also finished second 19 times on the regular and Champions Tours combined. He's had 90 top 10s and 232 top 25. Today, the Arizona Golf Association presents the Billy Mayfair Trophy for the local player with the lowest weighted scoring average. And I'm excited he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Billy, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for having me. I've really been thrilled. I'm looking forward to this. I appreciate you very much. So, Billy, uh, let's start by going all the way back to the beginning. As a kid growing up in Phoenix, who was the one that sparked <laughs> your love for the game? Uh, you know, I used to I used to love to go out to the Phoenix Open when it was at the Old Fiends Country Club and, and watch the guys play and, and how well they hit it on the range and all that. And I, and I really fell in love with guys like Miller Barber, Miller Barber, uh, Gene Littler, uh, Tom Weiskopf, Johnny Miller, 
uh, those are the guys I kind of looked up to. But, uh, you know, growing up, you know, it was Jack. I mean, every time Jack got in contention, the look, the, 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 the swag, the, the golf swing, and just the way he putted and just made putts. I mean, he, he was my idol growing up. And, uh, I fortunately have gotten a few times to play with him and, and be around him. And, and it's a thrill. But growing up, it was Jack Nicholas for me. So Billy, to your point, when, when you get your first opportunity to go play with your idol, what's that like? <laughs> what's going through your mind? What's going through your stomach? How do you, how do you, you know, draw it back when you're, when your idol is right there watching you play? It's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, he's watching in and he's critiquing you and all that. And, and I was fortunate enough, uh, a while back while I was in college, that, uh, I got to open up one of the golf courses up at Desert Mountain with Jack and got to play with him in a twosome and, and with a lot of people around. And, uh, uh, I didn't sleep very much the night before. Let's just say that I've, I've been in a lot of pressure situations, but that might have been one of the top five right there for sure. But, you know, Jack was, was wonderful to me. He made me relax. We had a great time. And actually after the, after the exhibition, we sat around and ate brownies and Coke for, uh, for about, uh, two hours discussing stuff. And that was, that was the time of my life right there. No doubt. Yeah. So Billy was Arizona state, always the place you wanted to play your college golf because you were such a great junior player. I have to imagine every country around the, or every school around the country was recruiting you. Yeah, I, I got a lot of, lot of, lot of offers. I think I had something close to about 20, 25 different offers from all around and narrowed it down to about two or three. But, um, the two things that really made my decision to go to Arizona State was one, obviously my, my instructor, Arch Watkins, uh, was right there. Um, so I, I, I got to always have him in my backyard. And two, I, I knew all the golf courses there in Arizona. I knew the ones we were going to qualify on and all that. So, and, it was just a, like a home field advantage for me. So it, and, and of course the weather too, but, um, it, it was, it was a hard decision, but it was, um, it was, it was, it was great. I, I know I made the right decisions. A lot of guys go to college and they make the wrong decisions where they go, but I made the right decision to go to Arizona state. Billy, when I was doing the research for you coming on tonight, I, you know, I went back and I looked at the 87 us amateur and I looked at a lot of the USGA tournaments that you played in the opens and whatnot. And, and you made a bunch of pars and a couple of birdies coming down the stretch at the 87 U.S. Amateur, which I think is indicative of your style in USGA events. No big numbers. Pars usually a really good score at a USGA event. Was patience your strategy then and when you were playing in USGA events, kind of let your opponents make the mistakes? Well, yeah, kind of. I, I, I never, you know, growing up, even in college, when I was, I, I never really hit the ball all that far. I hit it very, really, really straight. Uh, I hit a lot of good iron shots and, and, and putted very well. So when you have that formula, um, you know, there's days you're going to make some putts or not. But, you know, I just, I had a formula where I, I, when the USGA came along and they were hard, hard golf courses, I got the ball in the fairway. I hit it in the right spots of the green. And, you know, if I didn't make the birdie putt, I made the par and, and in match play, you can win a lot of holes with par. So, and, you know, even when I was low amateur at the uh, Brookline in, in, um, in uh, 87, uh, when Curtis won, uh, it was another golf course. I finished two over par for the week. And, um, you know, just made a lot of, hit a lot of fairways, a lot of greens, and made a lot of pars. And, Billy, going back to your days at Arizona State, a lot of great players have come out of ASU. Mm-hmm. You, Phil Mickelson, John Rahm, Paul Casey, Pat Perez. Howard Twitty, Bob Gilder, Joanne Carner, Tom Pertzer, who's become a wonderful friend of the show, 
and I could go on and on. Talk about the rich golf history at Arizona State. Well, we do. It, 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 you know, kind of growing up in the Valley, I got, you know, to see a lot of it, you know, firsthand and go to the tournaments. And I remember watching, you know, Corey Pavin, you know, he played at UCLA, but I remember watching Howard Twitty and Pertzer. And, you know, when they were playing at ASU, I was young enough to kind of go out there and watch them play. And, 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 and uh, even when I wasn't in college yet, I'd be out at Papago where they were practicing and kind of got to see everyone out there and be around it and all that. So uh, it's, it's a rich history. I'm very proud to be a Sun Devil. Uh, and I think the tradition keeps on continuing. I think they're doing a great job there now. And, and, uh, but college golf, as you know, Chris, college golf is a lot since, you know, when I went to school. So, uh, there's a lot of programs out there that we never heard of that now are top notch just because of the facilities and all that. But, uh, I was real proud to be a Sun Devil and I enjoyed it. And, and, and to be part of the heritage and the tradition there is, is an honor for me. Billy, like I mentioned in your intro, you're the only player to ever beat Tiger Woods in a playoff. Knowing you're the yep, only yep. one to do it, it's got to bring a smile to your face every time someone like me reminds you about it. Talk about what that meant to you and now being able to reflect back on it, how much that brings a smile to your face even to this day. Yeah, it does right now. Even when you said it in the intro and you said it now, it just brings a huge smile to my face. It was, you know, at the time when I beat him in the playoff, you know, you never realize what it all means and all that. And then, you know, as time went along and, and Tiger's done what he's done just phenomenally out there and, and all that. But I, I mean, one of the funny stories I'll tell you that we were at a tournament not too long ago and, you know, I was sitting there eating lunch and Tiger came down and, and sat next to me and he said, you know, uh, I hope you don't mind me sitting with you. I, I, you're the only one I can't intimidate. So, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's always nice. And, and, and like I said, Tiger's such a class act and, and he handles things very well. And, and, you know, you learn a true champion, not by when he wins, but when he loses. And that's what I guess I learned the most from Tiger Woods. He got, I, I beat him, but he handled the loss so well and, and treated me so well afterwards. And, and all through my career, uh, I respect the guy more because I beat him than for what he's done winning, you know. And Billy, is the opposite side of that coin, I imagine the, the 95 Phoenix Open when you finished second to, to VJ to be so close in what had to be a home game for you. I, I imagine it's a, a different kind of pressure trying to bring home a win in front of the home crowd than if mm -hmm. you're trying to win somewhere else. What, what do you remember about that week? Well, I, I, I remember I was struggling the first part of the week and kind of found a golf swing coming on, you know, about Thursday and, and just really played well and handled the pressure in the crowds very, very well. And, uh, I made a good pin down on 18 out of the bunker to, to get in the playoff. And, and in the playoff, I, I hit it left of the green and decided to chip it because there was a sprinkler head there. And it's funny. I was out at TPC Scottsdale a few weeks ago, and I stood there in the same spot on 18 and, and still think about should I have putted it or should I have chipped it. So um, it's been a long time, and, and I still I still kick myself for letting that one get by me. You also nearly won your first ever event out on the Champions Tour, the 2016 U.S. Senior Open at Scioto Country Club. You finished tied for a second that week, one behind Gene Sowers, and you were one of only four players to finish under par that week. Very nearly made a hole-in-one on the ninth hole in the final round, which probably wins that golf tournament for you. What do you remember yep. about that week and that shot? Well, it was, it was a great week. I was fortunate enough to get to play in the U.S. Senior. They had to move it back because of the Olympics. Uh, so which made it back in August, which allowed me to turn 50 so I could play in it. And 
and I had played Toyota before. I knew the golf course very well uh, because Jack being there and all that. But um, I, I was just so happy to be out in the Champions Tour. I was happy to be not only on a Champions Tour to, to play in a U.S. Open and a U.S. Open at Toyota. Um, it was just exciting, and I and I prepared very hard. I I flew back early, played the golf course. Uh, I was ready for that tournament, and um, like you said, a few more putts or one putt or one shot goes in the hole. You know, we could have got that win, but you know, it was it was a good start to to the Champions Tour career. And Billy, this is your sixth year out there, I believe, out on the Champions Tour. And and when I talk mm-hmm. to your peers, they talk about it being probably more fun than playing out on the regular tour. I mean, you still want to beat the brain, you know, the brains out of the guys you're playing against starting on Friday, but you get to play against the guys you competed against for years. Is it more fun mm-hmm. for you out there on the Champions Tour than it was on the regular tour? Yeah, it was, it's a lot less stressful. I mean, there's only three days instead of four. Uh, you know, all the guys in the field, there'll be a field anywhere from 78 guys to 80. Uh, and you probably know every guy in the field and have played with them at some time or another. And, um, yes, we're very competitive out there and we still all want to play well and all that. But the nice part too is after the round to, to sit in the locker room and, and, and everyone kind of talk still and, and, and tell old stories and, and all that. Um, that, that's probably one of the most fun we have out there in the Champions Tour is what, when we all get to talk to each other in the locker room. Billy, I saw your driving distance. You're averaging 274 yards so far this year. You, you averaged 278 last year. How different is that from how far you drove it when you were playing in college and when you first came out on the PGA Tour? Well, actually, actually, Chris, I think I hit it further now. Uh, than I did when I was uh, on on the big tour. Uh, sometimes when uh, they've moved some tees back and made them, I still hit it in the same spot, even though we're another 20 yards further back. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the equipment, obviously the drivers and the golf ball. But uh, my wife has been very strict with me to, to stay in good shape and to work out and to stay healthy and uh, so that we can play for a long time. I'd love to play on the Champions Tour until I'm 60, 61 years old. And uh, but I know that I, in order to do that, I got to be competitive and all I got to look at someone's like Bernhard Langer and how good, good a shape he's in all the time. But, um, I, I, like I said, I think a little bit has to do with the equipment and all that, but I've, I've been really hard. I've been working hard to stay in good shape. So I think that helps it too. The distance. Billy, when I look back over your playing career and I zero in on your putting style, it's had an evolution to it. Talk about how your putting stroke has evolved over the years. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think the I think the great uh, quote by, by Gary McCourty used to call it the rockabilly. And to me, when I stroke the putt before with a shorter putter, it looked straight back and straight through to me. But obviously, when the camera got hold of it, it was different. Sometimes my practice strokes were just perfect back and through, and then when I would hit the actual putt, it was a different type of stroke. Um. I think my eyes then I've learned to, to train my eyes a little bit different since then. And, and there are times when I don't have good days of putting, I wish maybe I could go back to that rockabilly stroke every once in a while. But, uh, you know, it was something that, that worked every time I, I could do it consistently. And, and I, I know Tom was just on a minute ago talking about, you know, instructions and all that. And, and he would say the short game is the most important thing, but you know, you just have to repeat that putter and repeat it and repeat it. And, and that's what I was able to do with that odd stroke. And Billy, you're no stranger to battling health challenges. You successfully beat testicular cancer. Talk about how you were able to win that battle. Well, it, it, you know, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was uh, my my wife and I were together, and uh, 
we, we kind of noticed a, a large lump, you know, down, down, down a little bit further than me. And, and we got it looked at and, and we caught it while it was still encapsulized. We, 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 we got it taken care of. I, I was, uh, had to go through some uh, chemotherapy and all that, but, uh, knock on wood for eight years now, I've been clean and, and, and very happy. So I, I, the blessing for me, uh, yeah, 13 years, excuse me, 13 years, uh, that was that we got it, we caught it early. And, uh, that's what I'm very blessed about was that we caught the cancer early enough to, uh, to kick, to kick it and, uh, not affect my life too much. And Billy, a couple of years ago, you also learned that you're on the autism spectrum. Talk about mm-hmm. being a high functioning yeah. person on that spectrum. Well, this is something that's been that that obviously learning that you have autism at age 52 is kind of a, a shell shock, but it, it really helped me in my life and 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 making sense of a lot of things that I did uh, when I was younger, when I was you know in college, when I was going to college, and and um, it's it, it's allowed me to make sense more of why I do the things that I do and 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 why uh, golf has been such a great sport for me. Um, I think. Because of autism, I think that that has actually helped me in my golf game. It's helped me focus better at times. But a lot of times I would wonder why I did certain things. And now that I know because of the autism, to me, why I did some of those things. But um, I think the biggest thrill for me is learning more about it and now getting a chance with my wife and I to help uh, people with autism, to help kids, to help their families, and to kind of give back a little bit. Uh, to help people with this uh, with this disease or this disability. And Billy, you're such a wonderful speaker, and you do such great interviews. How did you and your wife come to the conclusion that you needed to get tested? Because <laughs> she lives with me every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, if, if you read most things on high functioning autism, I mean, you and I talk, or you know, you see me every once in a while, you would never know it. But if you lived with me. <laughs> Uh, I can be a little testy at times and, and, and I realize that, but my wife kind of caught on to it. She, she, she saw, saw things. And then, uh, after we were tested, it, it, it made a lot more sense to me and, and all that. But like I said, I'm very high functioning, but if, if you would notice me a little bit different at times, if you were around me a lot more, I think. So Billy, what's next for you this season? What's next up? Well, we're we're home for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we we have a new tournament in uh, in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, on the Champions Tour. New golf course down there, Jack Nicklaus uh, designed, and we're anxious for that. That's about two weeks away, and then uh, we we kind of get the Champions Tour kind of gets in full swing. We've got a new tournament down in Dallas, and, and of course Houston, and then our first major there in uh, 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 Alabama. So uh, the the Champions Tour is time to get going, and, and we're we're anxious, and I and I'm looking forward to a great year. So, Billy, how can our listeners stay up to date with you and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? I, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's to show up, uh, you know, I, um, I, I'm on Twitter quite a bit. I try to do a lot of things and, 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 uh, we have a, we have a, a Mayfair Family Foundation, um, at Outlook.com that people can and hook on if they're interested in, in more about, uh, the autism, uh, spectrum and, and our foundation. Um, but, you know, I'm on social media, and, and uh, I, I love talking to people and, and doing a lot of neat things. Well, Billy, it's been a thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. It's been a lot of fun. I'd love, there's, there's so much more I'd like to get into with you about your career. Hopefully we get that privilege of having you back. Well, I hope so, Chris. Thank you so much. I've listened to your show many times. You do a great job. And as, as Tom said before me, uh, you, you're, you're one of the best. And uh, 
and we we as golfers really respect guys who respect us and uh that's hard it's hard out there especially in the world that we live in and uh thank you for always being such a good guy and and and, and understanding and, and doing a good job yes thank you well I, well I appreciate that very much billy all the best to you and your wife i look forward to catching up with you again soon thank you chris take care you too billy that's okay. a great billy mayfair and folks you can follow him on twitter at B Mayfair Golf, you can find him there. Uh, a lot of great stuff there tonight. Um, Billy's a wonderful player. And as you heard, a, a really great person. And, uh, we've only barely unpacked some of the stuff from his career. So I really look forward to having him back on the show again. Like I say, hopefully real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Hal Sutton, I want to talk to you about our new friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. All right, now back with me and making his seventh appearance here on Next on the T is PGA Tour legend Hal Sutton. Hal's a great follow on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, at Hal Sutton Golf and through his own podcast, Be the Right Club Today, which is absolutely fantastic, folks. You can watch and subscribe to it on YouTube and on a number of podcasting sites like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For those of you who haven't joined me before when Hal has been a part of the show and may not remember, how great a career Hal has had so far. Let me remind you about some of his accomplishments. His college golf at Centenary. He was named the 1980 Golf College Player of the Year. He won 14 times during his college career. He was a two-time All-American, and he led Centenary to the NCAA tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. He won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship, turned pro the next year in 81, Won for the first time on the PGA Tour at the 1982 Walt Disney World Classic. And that year, he was named the Tour's Rookie of the Year. 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. 1998, he won the Tour Championship right here in Atlanta. In 2000, he won the Players' Championship for a second time, this time by one stroke over Tiger Woods. Captained the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team. Backed up his 14 wins in college with 14 more on the PGA Tour. Finished second 18 times. He has 135 top 10s and 239 top 25s. And like I say, how Hal Sutton is not in the World Golf Hall of Fame is a huge mystery to me. But it's a thrill. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Hal, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Chris. And uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. Thank you. Better now that you're on the show. It's great to hear your voice again. Talk, catch us up. What's been going on with you? Uh, just working, just trying to help people get better at the game we all love. Uh, it's it's a mystery to most of us. You know, sometimes we think we've, we've got it, and most of the time we know we don't have it. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about your show. Talk about Be the Right Club today. Every time I turn around, you've got another great player or instructor on your show. You've had so many great guests over the last six or eight months. Talk about uh, your show and who you've had on recently. Uh, well, Be the Right Club today, when we were trying to decide on how we were going to format 
the show. You know, there's so many people that do things on current events and, uh, you know, we, we really want to help people become better players. And that's really the format of Be the Right Club today. Anything that we can do to add value to the person that's sitting out there that wants to get better at golf. That's been what we've tried to do. And, you know, here lately we've had Hale Irwin and Tom Watson on and, and we had a guy named Raymond Pryor, uh, who is one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to on golf. So everybody out there, if you have not, uh, heard of Raymond Pryor, Google him. Uh, I was sitting on the end of my seat while he was talking the whole time. You know, I'm sitting here trying to figure out how a guy, he's young, he's in his mid-30s, you know. It took me 40 years to learn some of the stuff he was talking about. And um really impressed with uh, Raymond. But anyway, uh, we've had some great guests on, and it's not about what happened today most of the time, uh, but it's it's about how to get better. You mentioned Tom Watson coming on, and I love that episode. I've watched it a couple of times. And you and Tom have something in common that isn't golf. Remind our listeners what the two of you have in common that's not on the golf course. Well, he and I both rode cutting horses. I I rode them long before he did, but uh, his wife, Hillary, had bought one of our horses uh, and did extremely well on it. And Tom participated a little bit, but he watched her more than he did himself uh, actually participate. And uh, she passed away a couple of years ago and uh, Tom just decided he was going to start riding more. And he texted me kind of the end of last year and he said, I just want you to know, I finally passed you in career earnings on uh, uh, cutting horses. And you know, we're talking $50,000 and we did it, you know, $200 at a time <laughs> and the entry <laughs> fee usually $500 or something like that. So I texted him back real quick and said, so how much did it cost you financially to pass me on that money? <laughs> he said, let's not talk about that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it, it, you know, one of the things that I'll say about a cutting horse, nothing moves faster underneath you than a cutting horse. It is, you know, I've had fast cars, uh, but nothing moves as fast as one of these horses under you. So it's exciting to ride one. Hal, you guys also talked about his 2009 Open Championship and what probably would have been the greatest victory in golf history. As I remember back in his second shot on 18, you guys talked about that. and It wasn't a bad shot. It just took a bad bounce and might have caught a little wind. Um, talk about your conversation with him about how close he came to, what, like I say, what would have been the greatest win ever. Yeah, well, you know, Tom is a fairly humble guy. I, I told him that I thought he was the the best player for the longest period of time that golf has ever known. And he would not accept that. And I, I alluded to the fact that he almost won the British Open at 60 years old. And he said, yeah, I hit as good a shot as I could hit. I hit the exact shot I was wanting to hit. And it just didn't work out. And, you know, probably 
if you know he I don't think he actually admitted this, but probably he wishes he would have chipped the shot instead of putted. He's one of the best chippers and pitchers of the ball that ever lived. But he decided to putt the ball and he ended up not getting it close and made five and and had to go into a playoff. But uh you know, Tom uh that would have been the greatest victory of all time, probably, to win the British Open at 60 years old. And that's how close. We're splitting hairs out there a lot of times. You know, you know, I got asked a thousand times, you know, had you ever said be the right club today? And no, I had never said that. It was just I had the perfect yardage. I knew I'd hit the shot exactly right. The only thing that could happen is an unknown. You know, we, we try to control all the factors when you're out there trying to play. But there are uncontrollable things that we have no control over that could strip us of our dream. And, um, you know, in his case, it stripped him of his dream there. Hal, I want to get your thoughts on the Players' Championship, starting with the weather challenges that we saw, all the rain and the incredible wind that we saw on Saturday. Is TPC Sawgrass the scariest course you have to play when the winds are blowing like that? Well, any Pete Pete Dye golf course is he he builds pretty precise landing targets, and uh, you know he's you're looking at a bullseye all the time with him, and you better make sure you hit the bullseye. And when you get the elements involved, high winds and things like that, it makes it really tough. And you know one of the things that. Uh, made it tough there is they're playing with lower spin balls now, which helps in high wind, but it also, they're going at everything hard all the time. And they very seldom throttle down. And the way you keep the ball lower and to keep it from rising is pull too much club and just throttle back. And you don't see a PGA Tour player do that much anymore. We used to have to do that all the time. But uh, seldomly do they do that. You know, in the academy, we have kids come in all the time, and they're trying to hit every club that they got as hard as they can hit it. And I tell all the kids all the time, I was forced into having to swing it hard. Today, it's every kid's choice to swing at it hard. And uh, just a different game now. When there's high winds, you really need to go at it easier. How, for many reasons, I thought of you yesterday watching the final round of the players. Kevin Kisner tweeted out a video of his tee shot on 17 where he went you know, right for the flag, and he said, scared money doesn't make money. What do you think of Cam's performance, in particular his tee shot on 17, which, after we talked last year, a far cry from what we saw Lee Westwood do on 17 in last year's tournament? Well... <laughs> little different situation. Cam was in the lead when that happened, and Lee Westwood was behind and trying to catch the lead. Cam is a very young man, and Lee Westwood was looking at his last opportunity, most likely. So, completely different set of circumstances. Uh, you know, Cam said that he actually pushed that ball. He wasn't really trying to hit it over there. And, uh, you know, I was screaming at the TV when he gets to 18 and he's got a three-shot lead and he pulls out a driver. Uh, I'm sorry. We could never talk that into a smart play. Uh, 
if I'd have been his caddy, he and I would have had an argument right there. Three point <laughs> six million dollars. You got a three. You got a three shot lead. Five iron. Five iron. Pitching wedge. Two putt. Win by two. <laughs> and you know, I mean, at that point, he's made ten birdies already on the day. He's got nothing left to prove. All he can do is lose something, and damn if he didn't almost do that. Yeah, well, and I, I said the same thing at the top of the show with Tom Patrick. I, I sort of felt like Phil Mickelson at Wingfoot in 2006 when, when Cam pulled the driver. I, I was sort of yelling, doing the same thing to his caddy, like, take the driver out of his hand, snap it over your knee, hand him a three-wood, and let's go. Like, I, right. to me, I just I, he already duck-hooked one on 16 that he put in the pine straw. And then he had already driven two in the water on 18 and, and two of the final three or previous three rounds. I don't, I don't understand the thought process. Well, uh, we'll never figure that out. And I, I'm not sure why he did. Uh, and, and we'll never know whether he actually tell us the deep reasoning for that, you know, but, uh, it, fortunately for him, it worked out. Uh, you know, Paul Casey, which, uh, I want to go back to 16. I thought Paul Casey showed as much class as he could possibly show because that ball rolled into that pitch mark and left it impossible for him to go for the green when he really needed to go for the green. And, you know, I watched him shake his head one time in disgust, but I never saw anything after that that said anything other than let's go finish this round. And my hat's off to him because that would have been a very frustrating moment right there. What I was, the point I was going to make is he hit three wood on 18 and he had 205 yards. And for most of those guys, that's a five iron. And, you know, that would have been a simple play for, uh, Cam to have, uh, made, but he chose not to do that. And, you know, I'm going to make one more comment too. What most people don't realize, we watch Keegan Bradley chip it into the water. From underneath that tree, we watched Cam Smith do the exact same thing. The left side of that fairway, when you're trying to get it as close to the green as you can, is running away from you at the water. That's typical Pete Dye. Those are little subtleties that are always in his golf courses that you've got to plan on. And, you know, both of them hit it in the water, and it cost both of them a whole – well, it didn't cost Cam, but it cost Keegan Bradley a whole lot of money to do that. How you obviously won that tournament 17 years apart. Is this your favorite time of year because of the great memories and you get to look back on it? Or do you know there's going to be a bunch of guys like me asking you the same questions about beating Tiger and everything else? And we're asking you the same question over and over for 21 years now. Well, Chris, I'm just going to say this. I am so happy that you get to ask me that question <laughs> over and over again because that meant that I did it a long time ago. And you know, What's really funny is it, it is faint in the memory banks. It's, it's a, I can't believe all the time that has passed. Uh, you know, the, the game of golf has changed so much and, uh, just, you know, I'll never forget one time. I, this is a, a great story for all your listeners to hear. I had the pleasure of working with Byron Nelson early in my career. And my rookie year, I finished 11th on the money list, made like $245,000. He called me on the phone. He said, Hal, why don't you come over to Preston Trails and hit balls with me? I want to watch you hit a few balls. I said, okay, Mr. Nelson, I'll come over. 
So I went over and he, as usual, he'd watch me and balls for about 30 minutes and then he'd say, let's go in and have lunch. We go in to have lunch. And, uh, we sat down and I noticed there's some big tears running down his cheek. And I said, Mr. Nelson, what's wrong? He said, nothing, Al. He said, I'm just thinking about all the money you won this year. Finished 11th on the money list, $245,000. And that's more money than I made in my entire career. Wow. And my immediate reaction was, I'm sorry. He said, oh, no, no, don't be sorry. He said, I feel like I had something to do with your golf game and something to do with the tour as well. And I think that's appropriate for me to tell that story right now because, you know, the game passes a lot of us by. And all we have is our memories. And, you know, with all the big saga of this Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson and all the the stuff about a secondary tour, you know, the platform in which everybody knows about Tiger Woods and Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson is called the PGA Tour. And I never wanted to bite the hand that fed me, especially when that hand was responsible for more money than all three of the other major sports put together to charity. By a long shot, I might add. How do you improve upon that? couple more before I let you go. But I, I actually want to ask you about your first Players' Championship victory in 83. John Cook, who's become a great friend of the show, he led that golf tournament after the second and third rounds. You trail by four going into the final round. Talk about the 69 that you shot in that final round, which was the second best round of the day back then. Well, it was kind of a windy day. It wasn't as windy as the day they experienced the other day, but it was pretty hard wind. I had to hit eight iron into 18, I mean, into uh, 17. And I started it at the center of the green and the wind moved it all the way over by the flag. So it was a tough day. It was one, I mean, the wind separates players. And, uh, you know, I was known as a better wind player than a lot of the guys because I hit it pretty low. And, uh, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and, see the wind blowing and it's like oh this is great and a lot of guys wake up in the morning and this is great for all the young people out there to listen to you know wind is a separator learn how to play in the wind because few people really know how to play into the wind so if you learn how to do it you've got an advantage over everybody else and then when you wake up and see the wind blowing you'll be like oh i've got an advantage today how one more before I let you go. But one of the things that you talk about when there, but most of us see the trouble when we're on a, when we get to a golf hole that's got water or trees or whatever. Obviously a lot of that we at the players championship on 17 and 8, but we focus on as amateurs. Ooh, I don't want to hit it over there. How do we do a better job in our mental approach not to see the trouble in where we don't want to hit the ball? but do a better job of focusing where we do want it to land? Well, that's the $64,000 question, but I always tried to look at the bullseye where I wanted to go and tried to see less of anything else. Uh, but that's the old, uh, is your glass half empty or half full, so to speak? Um, you know, are you looking for trouble? Or are you looking for the, uh, the promised land? And, you know, I always tried to look right where I wanted to hit it, tried to see as little of anything else. 
I tried to reduce the size of my world instead of make my world big. You know, the truth is you get up on the 18th tee at TPC and there's all that water to the left. And PDI is known for doing things that draw your eye to it. You must be committed to only looking where you want to go because there's plenty of other things out there to look at. Reduce the size of your world. How one more. And, uh, we're all looking ahead now to Augusta National. You played there many times, including finishing 10th in 2000. We always hear that it's a second shot golf course and to be in contention, you got to know where to hit those shots on the greens. Is that accurate? And did, did you play practice rounds and try to get into some of the, the, the strategy from legends like Jack or Gary or Mr. Player or, or Mr. Palmer? Any of those guys to try to help you when you first started playing Augusta National to figure out how am I going to get around this golf course and have a chance to win? Well, uh, I'd love to tell you I knew how to play Augusta National, but I played there 18 times in my career, and it's unfortunate that 10th is the best I was ever able to do. I'm not sure I ever figured out how to play Augusta. I was always known as a really good iron player, but I think I put too much pressure on my irons to get it close and short-sided myself there too much. Um, I think uh, they've turned it into bombers have a better chance there than an average hitter. And one of the things that TPC does, I think, puts a medium-range hitter into the forefront because the bombers can't hit their driver into the tight areas that Pete Dye leaves there, like on 14 and 5, and I could name a bunch of them, 18, for instance. Really gets tight for the bomber down there. So uh, at Augusta, it's opposite to that. The further you hit it, the better opportunity you got. Al, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing with your podcast, uh, your golf academy, and how they can follow you on social media as well. Well, it's Hal Sutton Golf on Twitter. It's uh, Hal Sutton Golf Academy. We've got a website there. And uh, it's Be the Right Club Today podcast. And prior to me being on, I heard you say YouTube and Spotify and Apple. You can find out Be the Right Club Today on all those. So uh love you, Chris. You, you're the kindest guy in golf to all of us golfers. I heard the end of Billy there talking about how you respect everybody so much. And I couldn't agree with that more. It makes all of us feel great. You, you're always saying kind things about everybody. So we we really appreciate you, Chris. Well, I can't thank you enough for that, Hal. You know how much I care about you and the, and your peers. You guys mean a great deal to me. You mean the world to me. I can't thank you enough for all the times you've been a part of the show and taking time out of your busy schedule to come back again tonight. You're the best, my friend. Well, always glad to. Thanks, Chris. Take care, Hal. Stay safe. All the best to you okay. and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. Okay. Bye-bye. That's a great Hal Sutton, folks. Um, and I'm sincere when I say he should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. How a guy that is as decorated as Hal Sutton isn't in the World Golf Hall of Fame is a complete mystery and, and in my opinion, a travesty uh, for the World Golf Hall of Fame. To overlook a guy that won 14 times in college, won a U.S. Amateur, won 14 times on the tour, won two players' championships, and a 1983 PGA championship, and then has continued to do great things through instruction. I'm shaking my head, folks.
should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. I'll take that to my grave if uh, if it doesn't happen, but uh, we will certainly be lobbying hard for him to do that. And again, be the right club today. You know the phrase. And uh, his his uh, podcast is absolutely fantastic. Chase Cooper uh, is his co-host. They do a great job and they have a lot of great guests. So be sure to go check that out and subscribe as well. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Owen Brown, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the Valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back in making his 10th appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is Owen Brown. Let me remind you about Owen's background. He's from Washington, D.C., played his college golf at Occidental College out in L.A., he joined the team as a sophomore and gradually moved his way up to be their number one player. He was named a first-team All-Conference, All-SCIAC, in 1980 and 1982 and was inducted into their Golf Hall of Fame in 1997. And, oh, by the way, their Golf Annual MVP Award is now named in his honor. He turned pro in 1984. He won four times on what's now the Corn Ferry Tour, twice in 1991, once in 93, and once in 96. He won three times out on the regular tour at the 1998 Greater Hartford Open by chipping in, oh, by the way, from 40 feet to defeat Stewart Sink in a playoff. He also won the 1999 Colonial and the 2005 Deutsche Bank Championship. In 2005, he was named the PGA Tour's Comeback Player of the Year. He's won twice so far out on the Champions Tour, including the 2011 U.S. Senior Open and the 2015 Greater Gwinnett Championship here in Atlanta. In all, on the PGA Tour Champions, he has those two wins, plus 48 top 10s and 118 top 25s. And I tell you what, folks, I couldn't be more thrilled that I got to end last season talking to Owen Brown, and I get to end the first show of this season talking to Owen Brown. Hey, O, how are you, my friend? Chris, it's great to be with you tonight. I, I, uh, I called in and got to hear the last few uh, minutes of your conversation with Hal and but there, I have so much respect for that man he is uh, he is everything that everybody uh, uh, thinks he is in, in the game of golf he is an awesome dude and great great job so you text me when we were talking and I was talking to Hal and you said hey be sure to ask me about Hal Sutton and being the best tee to green player I ever played with is that right that is a fact um how how Peter Green w- was absolutely extraordinary. He drove it dead straight, and his irons were dead straight. And the be the right club today shot on the last hole. If there was ever a shot for anybody to be right in his wheelhouse on the seventy second hole of a championship of that caliber, it's that dude with the six iron from one eighty four or whatever it was. Uh, 
you know, it was truly a great shot. But if anybody ever wanted a shot that mattered in that situation, that was the guy to have that particular shot on that day. He was just awesome, Tita Green. Oh, I want to take a step back because I wanted to start off our conversation tonight because, first of all, once upon a time, you were the best internet radio jockey on Twitter because you would start each day posting a great song. And now I see your daughter, Alexandra. What a fantastic singer she is. She recently posted a video, and I listened to, you know, the, at least that much of the clip. Wow, wow she's got a great voice. Is, uh, is, that, uh, is that the Brown family thing? You guys are great musicians? Oh, I, I can't, I can't play a kazoo, bro. Uh, she's, she's awesome. She's got a bunch of new songs coming out. You can find her on alexanderbrown.com. Um, she's on Spotify. She's on Apple. Um, she's on, uh, a bunch of streets, Pandora, iTunes, and, uh, she's having a lot of fun with it. She's really creative. She, she does an occasional cover, but she writes and, and produces her own music and, um, uh, it's a lot of fun and it fills you with a lot of pride as a dad to see your kids do something that makes them so happy and that they have so much fun doing. And oh, speaking of being behind the microphone, you've done some work as an on-course analyst during the U.S. Open for Fox once upon a time. You did some work for ESPN. Is this a, a future perhaps for you down the road when you decide to quit playing the Champions Tour that we could see you out as an on-course analyst? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do some of that. I, I, uh, you know, I love the game of golf. I got into golf because I have such a, uh, a respect and admiration for everybody who plays in it. I love the game so much. And, uh, you know, my, my playing career is winding down and, uh, I, you know, I've had some experience doing some TV and, uh, I really enjoy it. I like still being part of the game, even though I don't play as much or as well as I did once. And, uh, you know, going forward to the next, eight or 10 years of my life, I could see it becoming more of a, of a component of what I do. I know, I know you shot a 63 at the Alliance championship at the old course at at broken sound. I I was looking back over your career and that tremendous round 63 out out on the the champions tour is, is something we all should aspire to be able to do. Is that the best round you ever had? Or did you, did you get it a little lower some other time? Um, you know, I think scores are relative to conditions, right? I mean, uh, so I think I, I shot 59 trying to, uh, qualifying for the U.S. Open in 2005 at, at Woodmont. Um, and I never understood the value of shooting sub 60 until, you know, kind of had legs after the fact. But I, I would say that there have been a number of rounds that I've really felt good about. And I felt they were really great, but I shot a 66 bogey free at Carnoustie in the senior open and, uh, about, I don't know, five years ago. And, and I always felt that under the conditions with the wind blowing a couple of clubs and, you know, Carnoustie being the nasty course that it can be that I, I always felt like that particular round of golf where I hit so many greens and I, you know, when I didn't hit the shot I wanted to hit, I left myself in a position where I could recover. A bogey-free 66 on a course like that really um, is a source of pride for me. I know I was going through the record books now that we're, like I say, uh, on the uh, other side of the Players' Championship. I was going back through a lot of the the records there, and um, I was looking at the leaderboard. 97, was that the first time you played at the Players? Probably was, yes. 
So, hey, what you do know you what? remember? Before you go any farther, before you yeah. go any farther, I absolutely hated that place. I mean, hated Is that it with right? a passion. Oh my god, I hated it. Yep. It's a train wreck waiting to happen on every hole, and I think we saw that. I think we saw that on uh, on Saturday last weekend, on in particular on the 17th hole, where guys they couldn't they couldn't play the hole. It, you know, you know, Brandel went nuts uh, on TV, and he and Paul McGinley kind of got into it about it. And I I tend to side with Brandel on on that particular issue because. You know, he said the, the proximity of the hole on Saturday was 40 feet. Well, that's a that's a radius of a diameter, right? The diameter was was a was a uh, uh, 80 feet, which equates to a 5,000 square foot green. The green's only 3,900 square feet. How are you going to play the hole? Uh, <laughs> it was just, and I felt that way. I felt that way about every hole out there. <laughs> what was it like for you, like the first time you went out there to play it? I mean, was it hated first sight? Pete Dye does a brilliant job, and I'm not being critical of the design uh, of the golf course. Um, but he he did a brilliant job of terrorizing people uh, <laughs> off the tee and on the second shot. Uh, just basically, um, as Hal as Hal mentioned, he he builds in features to the golf course that draw your eye and make you worry about outcomes as opposed to execution. And I think that's that's a design feature that has a, uh, you know, uh, an insidious and nefarious brilliance to it. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a, there's an evilness to it that, that I was never able to get past. And I suppose I showed up, I showed up at that week, you know, it was, I was duty bound. It's the players championship. You want to play well, you want to go there, you want to play well there. But I just, I just could never feel comfortable. And I just, <laughs> it was just torture. <laughs> Did you ever play in conditions like we saw there on Saturday where you had wind whipping at 20 to 40 miles an hour, a wet golf course because it rained the last couple of days, so you're not going to get any roll? And it just seems like that was the, some of the toughest conditions I've ever seen. What are the toughest conditions you've ever played in? Well, uh, you know, th- there may have been uh, conditions that blew in there for nine holes for a group or for a day or whatever, but I mean, We've all seen those kinds of conditions at uh, Sawgrass, at TPC, and there are plenty of times. Look, I think in a lot of ways, as much moisture as the golf course was holding was something of an advantage because the ball would stop if it landed on the green. Um, can you imagine playing the 17th hole with the wind blowing 43, and the, the highest gust I saw was 43 miles an hour. Imagine playing that hole with a 43 mile an hour downwind on a green that's that's firm. It's just not happening. You, you, there's no way to hit the green, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that makes it so difficult isn't the wind. It's the it's the fact that the wind blows 18 and gusts to 40, or is blowing 35 and then drops to 12 miles an hour. And so you know you you make an adjustment, or you make a play according to 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 what's being presented, then all of a sudden the conditions change while your ball's in mid-flight. And I mean, how many times have you seen a guy hit a shot and then look skyward, wondering where the wind's coming from, what's it doing, and why it did what it did to his ball? I mean, I think about Paul Goyos when he was in the playoffs with Sergio Garcia. He hit the shot he was look he he was looking to hit, and his ball came up short of the bulkhead. He looked straight up in the sky and goes, you know, how, how did the wind change? How am I supposed to know? It's so capricious. It's really a challenge. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the other courses that uh, I've heard guys out on the regular tour start to complain more and more about is Bay Hill. You know, the idea of the course conditions being U.S. Open-like, it's the week before Players' Championship. Guys are talking about not going back there to play. I know Chris DeMarco way back in the day talked about not wanting to play there because the course got to be unfair at times. What, what, what are your thoughts on Bay Hill? Is, is that course set up too difficult? And especially being the week before the players now, is it in danger of being a, a stop now that Mr. Palmer's not there where more and more players are going to skip in order to practice for the players championship? Well, you, you sure hate to see any course attached to a legend of our game, uh, get any kind of bad press. Um, uh, in, it, I think the, I played the tour for 18 years and probably played Bay Hill 15 or 16 times. I, I don't ever remember the course being quite as cooked as it was two weeks ago. And I think that's due to the, you know, the, the particular conditions, uh, that the players were confronted with. Um, we've had a dry winter. Uh, it was warm. Um, the, the, the color of the green was a color that you don't often see on TV. I mean, they were, they were silver. Uh, and you could tell that, that they, that there was much friction. I mean, I equated to, you know, when they, when they, when they oil the lanes at the bowling alley, you know, and the ball doesn't <laughs> take the, take the roll and, and you could see it. Guys were really, it, it was on the edge. And, you know, not to mention that it was, it was it was following the week at Honda where people were getting their teeth kicked in at the bear trap. So, you know, you got back-to-week chop buster golf courses before you head to the players, which is the biggest tournament of the PGA Tour season. Um, and it's a it's a wicked run. Uh, I know Scotty Scheffler had a good run. I know that uh, that uh, Seb Straka was pretty pleased. And by the way, he played well last week, and I don't think it's any accident that guys who play well at Honda or at Bay Hill then also play well at the players because those three golf courses share not necessarily architectural traits, but they share stylistic uh, characteristics that make make playing one similar to playing the other two. And so I think that it, they're great preparation uh, leading up to the players. But, boy, I'll tell you what, it's a gauntlet for sure. Oh, I want to get your thoughts on What's going on with this proposed Saudi league and, and, uh, your thoughts on the price that Phil Mickelson has paid for trying to leverage the Saudi league or the Saudi tour against the PGA tour. Seems like he's paid, at least in my view, he's paid an awfully steep price for a guy who has broken no laws. Well, uh, gosh, where, where do you begin? Um, the PGA tour is. You know, our tour. And I think that the, the guys who have come before my generation have great pride in the PGA tour. And, uh, there's a lot of gratefulness regarding careers in professional golf. Having said that, you know, golfers are independent contractors. It's like a, a little bit of a high wire act. There's, uh, there's not much of a support system in place. You lose your status and all of a sudden you're out. I mean, look, if you're, you're an NFL player and you blow a knee, you've signed a contract, you know, your knee heals and, and you get paid for that year and you come back and you get a chance to rehab a golfer. 
Colfer has an injury and is out for a year and a half. He doesn't get paid. Contracts are suspended in most cases. I mean, there's some guys who probably don't have that problem. I doubt Rory McIlroy has a, any contracts contingent on whether he plays, but, and not to single out Rory, but the point, the point is, is that, that I, I see, I see the point that some players would make that, um, for the, the level of play and their, and their acumen that they feel like they're, they're not, uh, compensated, um, in an equivalent way to some of the other professional sports. Now, having said that, it's a game that we've all picked and uh, we all volunteered for the mission. So, um, as it pertains to Phil and the price that he's paying, you know, it's one thing to try and up the ante and, and, uh, make the world a better place. But when you're maybe perceived as the person who's trying to take food out of the mouths of other players, I mean, I think he made a declarative statement that he's trying to, He's trying to make sure that the, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to pit one tour against another. Well, that's not the way anything gets done, uh, in this day and age. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, taken aback that Phil's star has fallen quite quickly as it has. And he's certainly paying a very steep price. On the other hand, you know, um, if you push the needle as hard as he has in this case, there's going to be a price to be paid for it, and, um, and it's just the reality of the way things are. So you make an interesting comparison a moment ago about life out on the tour, and I know you guys are independent contractors, but it, it sort of can be a lonely world, maybe feeling a bit like a commodity for sponsors and things of that nature. You compare it to the NFL, and you know I do a football show where I get to talk to a lot of the NFL legends and what life is like for them Later on, when whether they've blown out a knee or they've just reached a certain age and they get cut and that phone never rings again. And that's a lot of times how a lot of them end up being retired. They didn't get to have the conference where they get to have the cheery goodbye and all that sort of thing. They just get cut. The phone never rings. And now you're on to the next part of your life. It seems like potentially you guys are in that same boat that at some point, you know, hey, you know, whether it's through injury or through age or whatever, you know, the, the sponsors don't come back or the tour moves on without you. Is it tough looking down that barrel? You know, it's, it's a great question. I'm going to be 63 here in a couple of months and I've had a run of professional golf since I was 24 years old. Now that's, that's a pretty good run and I'm doing, I'm having a struggle with it, right? Because, um, I've lost my exempt status and I would, I would love to continue playing. You know, you know, the way I look at it, Chris, is that, is that people in business, in law and doctors, whatever, whatever their teachers, whatever their chosen profession, they work their, you know, you know, I'm not saying everybody, but people who love golf, right? And there are a lot of us. They work their whole lives so that they can retire. Then they retire and play golf. That's going to be their kind of retirement thing. And, and, for 40 years, I've had the privilege of playing golf and playing on the Ben Hogan Tour, which is now the Corn Ferry Tour, and the PGA Tour, and the PGA Tour champion. And and, and I've done it for 40 years, and I've, and I've gotten paid to do that. And that is the biggest gift that anybody could ever expect to receive. And I have such great uh, respect for all of my peers and all of the people who preceded us. Um, you know, you, you had on one of my favorite people in golf, Hal Sutton, before I came on tonight, for whom I have so much respect. He was so good at what he did. 
and he is such a great asset to the game. And you mentioned the Hall of Fame. Look, the Hall of Fame is going to come calling for Hal. He's got the identical record. And when I say identical, I mean the identical record to Freddie Couples. He's got two players' championships. He's got a major. He's got 14 wins. Um, now, he didn't play the Champions Tour for a long time, but Hal had other things on his mind, and he's doing things to help people further in golf. And uh, he, he'll get into the Hall of Fame. I have absolutely no doubt. If he doesn't, you're absolutely right. It's a travesty. But there are people like that. I mean, you get to shake Arnold Palmer's hand every year going up to his tournament or talk to Jack Nicklaus and ask him for his advice on how to play a certain course or what to do when there's a particular professional issue at hand or, you know, talk to Tom Watson about Ryder Cup or be part of the Ryder Cup as an assistant to Paul Azinger or any number of these other things. Shake Byron Nelson's hand coming off the 72nd hole at the Byron Nelson uh, in Dallas. And uh, all of these experiences um, are, are the hand-me-down experiences that the game of golf is so good at, at, uh, at, uh, documenting and preserving. And, um, they're all part of the fabric of the history of the game. And one of the things that makes it so great is, you, can, you know, you can read books about the game. You can, you can actually go and talk to these players and interact with them and get the hand me down stories. You know, the Jackie Burks of the world and the Byron Nelsons and the Ben Hogan's and the Sam Sneeds and all these guys who preceded all of us. And that includes the LPGA Tour, too. You know, the Judy Rankins. Gosh, she's a she's a national treasure. She's been part of the TV fabric for the longest time. Joanne Carner and uh, players like that of that ilk. It's an incredible. And one of the things that makes it so extraordinary is, right, you talk about other sports. Football players, you get a 10-year career, right, if they've had a good career. Baseball players might get 15. Golf is a 40-year career if you have good fortune and, you know, you manage to keep your game in shape long enough. I mean, there's absolutely nothing to complain about in the game of golf. And as it pertains to other leagues coming in and, and trying to pilfer the players for whatever uh, agenda they have, you know, there's there's going to be a certain resentment towards that kind of thing because, this is a very difficult environment. Uh, as I said, it's a high wire act and players have a lot of respect for everybody. And so, and a lot of respect for the game and the history of the game. So I, I think that's where coming circle to uh, your question about Phil and what's going on. I think that's really where a lot of people are with what's going on with uh, this other league. Look, is it a good thing that there's competition? You bet. Is it a good thing? that it helps move the needle in a certain direction, you bet. Uh, but I think Tiger Woods said it better than anybody else when he said that, you know, his legacy is tied indelibly to the PGA Tour. And when you talk about the greatest players who ever played the game, you know, it's in reference to what their accomplishments might have been on the PGA Tour. Sam Steen's got 82 wins. Jack Nicklaus has 18 major championships. Tiger Woods has 15. I mean, these are the elite of the elite of the elite players. And with the exception of the Bobby Locks, uh, maybe, and, uh, you know, a couple of other guys, Peter Thompson, uh, you know, the PGA Tour has been the historical benchmark for golf in it, and it will probably continue to be for a while longer. Oh, just a couple more before I let you go. Now that uh, the players is over, most of us are looking ahead to Augusta and the Masters. 
You played in that tournament a few times. What are some of your favorite memories of playing in the Masters? The Masters is uh, is a sensory experience. Um, you walk in uh, off of Washington Road, and, and you, you can't imagine um, this pristine uh, Garden of Eden of golf. And the first thing that I noticed, you know, you get this very uh, understated, clabbered um, clubhouse, old school, wooden floors, you know, maybe uh, a little pitch to one of the hallways, you know, the floor in the hallway, whatever. I mean, it, it, it's like it, it's been there for a long while. And then you step out the back back porch, walk down the steps, and there's a beautiful oak tree right there. And the, the wisteria vines are climbing the trees by the tenth tee, and the sensory overload hits you with the birds singing and the, the scent of the wisteria and the, the grass that, ha, that has not a blade out of place. And, and and it's a shock because you come in at ground level and you're all of a sudden looking down at the entire golf course. And from the from the top of the clubhouse, the back right there, you can see all, a piece of almost every hole. Um, and, and off to the left, the far left is, is the par three course. And it's just, it's an inexplicable experience as a player to be invited to play the Masters and to be able to experience the kind of thing that, I mean, there are a couple of places like that in all of golf. One of them is St. Andrews. It's known as the home of golf. Another one is Augusta National. You know, another very high profile venue is Pebble Beach. Um, those kinds of places are unique and um, very special, and they're the kinds of places that that we should all be feeling very thankful and privileged to have been able to experience. Oh, one more before I let you go, and I, I want to get a playing lesson from you. You've played, I'm sure, in tens of thousands of pro-ams. If you could sort of sum up what you've seen us amateurs do when we try to play with you, and you think to yourself, boy, you know, here, here's something, here's something easy that would fix your game or would save you five strokes around if you would do it. What, what's the simple thing that you, you would like to tell us amateurs that, that we are woefully not doing correctly that if we would just make this slight adjustment, we'd probably play a lot better golf and have more fun at it? Yeah, absolutely an impossible question to answer because there's so, <laughs> There's so much going on uh, in a pro but I, I'll say this. I think that nobody likes feeling uncomfortable, and I think, by and large, most amateurs feel uh, uncomfortable playing in a pro-am, certainly if it's their first or second time doing it, right? Um, golf is so hard. I'll just give an example. I played one of the greatest football players in the history of the game, Um and he was out of his element on the golf course, right? He was a great athlete, maybe the best athlete I've ever played golf with. But he was uncomfortable on the golf course. And I don't want to name him because I don't want to call him out or anything. But, you know, he came. He said, I want to come back and play your tee for a couple of holes. I go, sure, man, come on back. We'll have a good time. He played two holes back with me. He says, I'm moving back up to the up tees because it's such a precision-oriented game, and it takes a lifetime really to uh, – it's a, it's a never-ending cycle of improvement. And, you know, when you talk about the greatest athletes who have ever played, the Mike Smiths and the Michael Jordans and people like that, Emmett Smith and people like that, who take up, take up golf and want to get better at it, it catches them by 
surprised how much they love it. Larry Fitzgerald, there's another one. I mean, these guys are just Seth Curry, the best athlete who walked the planet, and the game challenges them to the nth power. Um, I, I think it's an unreasonable expectation for, you know, the average weekend warrior to come out and expect to hit perfect shots all the time. And yet that's what the game asks of all of us. And, you know, it presents a challenge that forces us all to reconsider our approach to what we're doing. And it keeps bringing us back for more and more. I guess, I guess, you know, uh, we, we all to some extent like the abuse that it dishes out, you know, because <laughs> it brings us, brings us to our knees. And yet there's always the one shot that makes us go, okay, this is really why I'm here. And this is what makes it so great. So, uh, you know, the one thing that I would say to most amateurs, it's just not a technical point. It's, you know, go out to the golf course and enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy being there. You know, if you can improve one little piece of your game by asking the pro that you're playing with, you know, for a tip or, you know, uh, any any kind of uh, any kind of uh, um, a mandate on how to get things going in the right direction, great. But bottom line is, is that nobody's perfect and nobody plays great golf all the time, and it's just a really really hard game. So go out and enjoy yourself the best that you can. Olin, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing? Whether they're following you online or it's on social media. You know, I'm on Twitter, and uh, I've got an Instagram Instagram account, but I don't too much on it except to see what people are doing and uh you know come out and support the pga tour champions the pga tour it's a great organization both of them uh, under the same umbrella you know there's so much there's so much good that goes to individual towns where we all visit you know the between the corn ferry the pga tour pga tour champions and the other ancillary pga tour um um tours like pga tour latin america the Forum Tour and McKenzie Tour. There's there's so much good that's done in local communities. And when you have the economic, the kind of economic impact that you know the Bay Hills and the Hondas and the Pebble Beaches and the memorials and and all the events. Of, you know the I don't know how many events there are in professional golf, but you know golf is about is about community and helping communities and and elevating people and bringing joy and happiness to people's lives. And, you know, it's just, it's a joy to be part of that. And it's a privilege. And I feel, you know, blessed to have been uh, running that railroad for the last couple, 30 years or so. It's just awesome gig. Well, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun getting the privilege to spend time with you. I'm already looking forward to time number 11. I hope you'll come back and do it again soon. Chris? You got to be hooked. Love talking to you. Uh, as Hal said, what you do for the golf community is just absolutely fabulous. Uh, you know, your tweets are always so positive. Your interviews are positive. You know, you're, you're interested in getting to the nuts and bolts of things and sharing people's experiences and passing along the joy that we all share in playing this wonderful game and the experience that we all get to get to uh, be a part of along the way. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me on your show. I look forward to it every time. I look forward to it the next time. I appreciate that very much, Olin. Take care, my friend. You're the best. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. Look forward to catching up soon. Take care and be well. See you, Olin. That is the great Olin Brown. And, folks, you want to talk about one of the finest people in the game of golf. You just heard him right there, Olin Brown. Wow, what a wonderful gentleman. What a wonderful storyteller. What a wonderful career. 
he has had, uh, you know, starting in college and coming all the way up through, uh, he, he, what's now the Corn Ferry Tour, but the Hogan Tour or whatever it was when it was named when, when Owen was coming through and then on the PGA Tour and now on the Champions Tour. Um, there's not a finer person you'll root for out on a golf course than Owen Brown. I can't tell you how much I have watched his game and just rooted so hard for him, uh, to play well. Um, just because he's just that, that great of a person. And like I say, uh, one of, one of the things we started off talking about, and please go, go give her a follow, Alexandra Brown. Folks, he's got a post out there on, on his Twitter page, again, at Olin Brown. What a wonderful talent this young lady is. What a great voice. And she's out there writing her own original music. Great stuff. You got to follow her. You got to follow Olin. And like I say, hopefully we get the privilege of catching up with Olin again here really, really soon. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Billy Mayfair, Hal Sutton, and Owen Brown for joining me tonight. What a great way to kick off Season 9, huh? Scheduled to come and be a part of this show next week, a guy who has been a fantastic friend and a great host of his own podcast, Talking Golf Getaways, Mitch Lawrence, is going to be back with me. It's always fun spending time with Mitch. 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey, will be making his return visit as well. Champions Tour Pro Jim Gallagher Jr. will be making his next on the tee debut, as will Strixon Director of Engineering Dustin Brecky. So looking forward to catching up with Dustin and having him as part of the show. So it's going to be a great one. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can find this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting site and app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podcast.co, AudioBoomPlayer.fm, Podbean. If you've got a favorite podcasting site or app, we're probably on it. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net. On there, you'll be able to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, we've got links to you know, recent episodes and individual segments. So whether you've got 90 minutes, two hours, or 20 minutes, we've got something there for you. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.